Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Noel. So here's something wild. It was only a few days ago that millions of kids and teens around the world became homeschoolers instantly. I know that going without daycare is challenging enough. And there are moments watching my housemates trade off with their toddler during the day that I've thought, this has got to be easier for people with older kids. Older kids can entertain themselves, right? I asked a friend of mine today who has three older kids, and they're all sweet, they're all smart, they're all church kids, their parents are creative, thoughtful, prayerful people, and I was thinking of them, so I emailed, you guys doing okay with all the kiddos at home? Need anything? My friend emailed back, today was our first day of mandated homeschooling. One kid literally punched a hole through the wall, so that's how that's going. How do you create structure without being too harsh with your kids? How do you encourage them without nagging them? How do you nag them when you need to nag them? How do you create appropriate and interesting variety in environments without causing more distraction? How in the world do you limit screen time when all there is is screen time? How do you guide your child's education when you yourself are not an educator? Abigail Woolley Cutter had the same questions. So she sat down over Zoom, of course, with educator and historian Susan Weisbauer to gain some insight for parents in this predicament. Right, I am here with Dr. Susan Wise Bauer, 
who has a Master of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, as well as an MA in English Language and Literature and a PhD in American Studies from the College of William and Mary. She was a member of the faculty of the College of William and Mary from 1994 to 2012. She is now the publisher and editor-in-chief of Well-Trained Mind Press, which publishes K-12 resources for teaching in the classical tradition. I first became aware of Dr. Bauer when I was homeschooling two young children of a missionary family in Central African Republic 12 years ago, and we used the story of the world history curriculum. At that point, I also read The Well-Trained Mind, which uh, Dr. Bauer wrote, which um, laid out the broader vision of classical education that could be done at home. So Susan, thank you so much for being willing to have this conversation with me today. We are in a, an unusual moment in history, um, particularly relevant to your work in that a lot of families find themselves homeschooling unexpectedly within the last couple of weeks. So, um, in particular, you've also mentioned that you've, you've been doing some thinking about some very relevant issues in science and, uh, bioethics, uh, as well these days. So I, I would love to hear about that if we, if we have time to delve into those interests as well. Uh, but as an introduction to your work, can you tell us a bit about the vision for education that you lay out in the well-trained mind? Sure. This really came from my own homeschooling experience, not as a parent necessarily, but as a student. Um, My mother started homeschooling my brother and my sister and I around 1972, and it was really for academic reasons. We were total misfits in the classroom. Um, She was a qualified teacher. She had never heard of homeschooling, but she didn't know what to do with us because we were such misfits. Um, So she took us to the, after trying to get us to fit into a, a school setting, Fruitlessly, she took us to the local mental health clinic to find out what was wrong with us. And so um, the psychologist who tested us said, well, there's nothing wrong with them. You just, you've done too good a job at preparing them for elementary school. We were way ahead of grade level. He said, they're just bored. You have a teaching degree. Why don't you pull them out and teach them yourself? So, I mean, this was before people even used the word homeschooling or home education or, you know, whatever version of it we're using. And so um, the well-trained mind is really is a recounting of a very, we call it classical, it's really a very traditional um, humanities K through 12 education um, that you can do at home without having to rely on experts. My mother and I drew up this plan together when my children were small, um, and I followed it with all four of them, and they're now, always have to stop and think, 28, 26, 23, and 19. So it, it's really, it's a plan for a good traditional solid education that you can fit to your child's interests, whether that's more humanities or more STEM, but that you don't have to simply rely on experts to carry out for you. That sounds really useful, particularly now. Particularly now. So in moving from a public school education or uh, perhaps a private school education to homeschooling, what needs to change? Uh, what can stay the same in goals and methods? How fundamental is this shift in mindset? Well, I think that there are two different shifts um, that we need to distinguish from each other. We're in a crisis moment right now. Um, yeah. A lot of people have their kids home, and we don't know what's going to happen. 
we don't know when schools are going to reopen. We're all just sort of, you know, treading water and waiting to see. And in that situation, the very last thing that you want to do is either try to reproduce what your kids were doing at school, or to be honest, set up a complete homeschool. You just, you don't want to do that. Whenever you're in a crisis situation where kids are suddenly out of their routine, um, depending on how old they are, they may or may not know what's going on, but they can tell you're upset, you know, and apprehensive. So there's a lot of free floating emotions spinning around the house. Their routine has been disrupted. You're all getting on each other's nerves. The last thing you want to do, to be honest, is try to set up quote unquote school at home. What you have to do, and, and you certainly don't want to try to reproduce what they were doing in the classroom. What you have to do between now and the beginning of the summer is figure out how to stay sane and keeping them, um, keeping their learning moving forward. So that means number one is once you're past the first, and I would say it's going to take a couple of weeks for everybody to even just get adjusted to the idea that you're all at home. So for the first couple of weeks of being at home, I would not set up any sort of uh, you know, routine or schedule apart from here's when we get up, here's when we eat, here's when we clean our rooms, you know, the basics. Um, but as soon as everybody kind of adjusts to that and starts to get a little bit bored and antsy, then all you want to do, I think, between now and June is think about three things. You want to think about math, language arts, and literature of some kind, reading of some kind, books, stories, stories from history, stories, bi biographies, stories from anywhere that you can find them. And try to set up a daily routine where every day you do some math, every day you write something, every day you do some grammar or some spelling, and then every day you spend a couple of hours exploring stories of some kind. Now, you know, the younger kids are, then, you know, the less... Uh, the less strict you have to be about this. Kids who are in high school, you're probably not gonna be facing the same sort of question because they've probably already got their work laid out for them. You know, their teachers are probably interacting with them. What you just have to remember is stay sane, give them something useful to do, find a way for them to fill their time that moves their learning forward and doesn't just leave them bored and um, picking fights with each other all day long. So, you know, it's it just, I just wanna emphasize that everybody who suddenly has kids home you don't have to make a big switch to homeschooling right now. Right. That's that's yeah. makes a lot of sense. So for some families, there may be a degree of continuity with the uh, teachers that students already have relationships and curriculum in place with. But for some families, that continuity is not as strong. I've spoken with some families who really are switching to completely self-guided education in their families. So that, that may look like a whole range of things, but your dose of reality seems really helpful. Don't, don't feel a need to completely start homeschooling like you might, if you'd been thinking about it for months and you're starting at the beginning of a school year, nor do you want to recreate everything that, or feel the pressure to recreate the full classroom experience. Well, I think, I think too, that we all as parents have to be really realistic about our own mental states. Um, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm used to doing big history projects. I've worked at home for a long time. I have four grown children. I'm having a really hard time concentrating, you know, because, because we don't know what's going on, you know, and it's very hard. It's very hard to continue to work effectively on a project that's already underway when you're in a state of agitation and uncertainty. 
So to put on top of that, I'm going to create a brand new homeschooling program that I wasn't expecting to. And to expect that to be at all effective, I think is just setting ourselves up for frustration. And, you know, people, we got to be realistic here. It's March. We were talking about April and May. How much gets done in April and May anyway? You know, um, as long as, as long as kids have a healthy routine that involves interaction with numbers and interaction with words, they are going to be just fine. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, maybe in August we have another conversation about actually setting up a full homeschooling curriculum because depending on what happens, some people may want to do that for the fall, but I just don't think that's our task right now. That makes a lot of sense. So given the difficulty that you're recognizing, not only for kids to transition, but also for parents to transition, do you have any advice for parents who are trying to supervise their children's education while continuing their own work from home? Yeah, yeah. And again, let's just be realistic. Um, realize that the younger kids are, the less you're going to be able to do with them if you're also working from home. You know, it's really important for parents to continue to work. We're going to need that. Um, and not to feel guilt over the fact that they're not somehow managing to do their full work at home schedule and then provide five hours of meaningful instruction for children. Um, you know, you really do need to think about this as a crisis situation. And that means that you don't have to feel guilty about it not being exactly what you would want if you were going to be doing this with your child for the next full calendar year. So I think that what's really realistic for parents, um, for younger children, is to plan on spending an hour and a half to two hours, and by younger I mean elementary, an hour and a half to two hours per day in direct some sort of direct instructional interaction with them where you're working together on some math facts or you're working together on doing some reading, some spelling, some grammar. Maybe then you're reading together, you're doing some history projects together, and then make super, super um, heavy use of audiobooks, unabridged audiobooks, online storytelling. There's just wonderful word-centered resources out there. Um, introduce them to something like the Khan Academy, where they can actually do math online with teachers, um, with fun projects. So an hour and a half to two hours of direct contact face-to-face -face with the kid, but then absolutely you use other resources. You use taped resources, you use recorded resources, you use online resources so that you can have a break and get your own work done and also feel that they're being meaningfully employed. And I also just want to add to this that I think all of us for the next couple of months need to stop feeling guilty about using screens when we need to. Mm. We can't go outside. They can't go to playgroup. They can't, you know, they can't do all of the different things that they're accustomed to doing. So use the screen. It's not going to ruin their brains. If they're watching extra TV they're watching extra movies, they're watching extra YouTube videos, and they're playing extra online games. Crisis situation, you know? If this goes on through the summer and we have to make plans for the next school year, then of course we all stop and say, okay, how are we gonna make the next year as productive as possible? But doing that now will put so much unnecessary stress on both you and your kids. That's right, that sounds good. We're, we're coping right now. Yeah, that's what everyone's doing. Now, I also really appreciate that you mention online resources and recordings, audiobooks. I have spoken with some families who 
uh, already use your curriculum and some of the supplementary resources that they would like to get, they would normally be getting through the library system. And that's not accessible right now either. So are there particular online resources that you haven't mentioned yet? Um, you mentioned the Can Academy for Mathematics. Audible, of course, is famous for audiobooks. Um, are there other sources that come to mind? Well, be sure to go to your local library website. And if your local library does not offer electronic resources, go to your state library. Every state has a central library system that's centered in the state capital. And sometimes if you go directly to that central library system, you're going to find that if you are a resident of the state and you've got a zip code and a billing address in the state, you qualify to register for a library card, which you can do online. And in many cases, that will give you access to a huge number of free eBooks and, um, and audio downloads. So just because you can't go to the library doesn't mean that you can't use the library. There, are, depending on what state you're in, there are a lot of resources that are available to you. If you go also to uh, YouTube and search for the name of your favorite author, storyteller, homeschool writer, so many people now have YouTube channels set up just for this purpose. So for example, um, Mo Willem, who wrote uh, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus and some other wonderful, and oh, and the Nuffle Bunny series. Um, I'm sorry, those are two different authors. I just conflated them. But if you go and look up one of your favorite authors, both of those authors have now weekly YouTube drawing lessons for young children. So just searching for the name of someone whose books you enjoy at this particular moment is a great way to find what they're offering for free online because you know what writers are all in their houses like everybody else trying to figure out how to reach out to readers so you can really tailor resources um, to you know what your family's taste in books might be to to what you might be studying if you're looking at slightly older children so for middle grade students for example and middle grade students are you know, having to do history at home and try to keep up with this. Um, Fordham University, so if you just go to Fordham.edu, has a wonderful collection of primary sources online, which are super accessible to middle grade students. And they're all organized by historical era and by subject. And I, a middle grade student can spend wonderful afternoons just pointing and clicking through these primary resources, which have all been translated and put online for them, and really have a chance to maybe do something that they didn't have time to do before because they were so busy, you know, writing papers and turning things in. So um, I would like to recommend that maybe if people go to um, our forums, we have what is probably the busiest online homeschooling forum on the internet and it's um, forums.welltrainedmind.com, you will find, and I'm not kidding you here, tens of thousands of parents who have been doing this for a long time, and also a lot of parents who are doing it for the first time, but all of whom have resources to share with you. So make use of your virtual community, pick out what's useful for you, and ignore what isn't. That's very helpful, yes. Everybody is inventing new solutions right now, but there are a lot of us at it. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of information out there. So one thing that as a parent that might be useful, um, actually I'm gonna suggest two things if you're, if you're a parent who's suddenly homeschooling. Um, plan yourself out every week, an hour or so, where you sit down 
and dig around for resources and acquaint yourself with what's out there. Because, I mean, if you're working at home, you're already short on time, you're probably just putting it together as you go. Um, you're going to, you know, be facing your bored kid and thinking, okay, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? If you take an hour a week early in the week and just dedicate that hour to lining up a bunch of different resources that you can then pass on to the child as needed, you're going to make life a lot easier for you. You know, you plan out your day, you plan out your work, you got to plan this out as well. And then the second thing I would highly, highly, highly recommend is um, I would recommend two hours, but an hour might be all you can manage. Everybody in the family needs to go to their own room every afternoon and be apart and be separate. Because if you're doing this for the first time, you're not used to having your child there all day long every day, and they're also not used to having you there all day long every day. Everybody needs a chance to go away to a separate corner of the house and contemplate <laughs> their own lives without having to respond to other members of the family. So um, when I was homeschooling, we called, this, we called this nap time. It wasn't really naps because they did it all the way up through high school. But we had a two-hour period from one to three every afternoon where everybody went to their own rooms and had to entertain themselves. And I provided resources, but I was off duty for those two hours. That was so important for me, for my mental health. It was really important for them, too. Um, my extrovert kids needed some practice entertaining themselves. And my introvert kids needed a break from their extroverted siblings. So um, plan that in and make it a regular part of every day. Very good idea. That sounds great. Um, so at this point, it doesn't sound like it's going to be practical for parents to invest or even necessary for parents to invest in purchasing resources for their kids education. Well, I would I would I would definitely I would you don't want to you don't want to go buying full year curricula which are expensive. Um if I had a certain amount of money to invest in resources, I would invest in um math workbooks, coloring books, um and then audiobooks. Those are the three places that I would spend my money. So I would Definitely not by a full year curriculum at this point. Now, I would encourage everyone to, you know, stay alert, keep an eye on what's going on. You don't have to do it right now while we're all sheltering in place and facing shortages of potatoes and toilet paper. Um, you know, you just don't have to do that right this minute. You're right to point out the limitations of this moment and keep the, keep the bar low. On the other hand, are there pedagogical possibilities that maybe people will discover new things, new exciting things. Maybe they'll learn something they didn't learn before. Oh, absolutely. And, and let's, let's actually, let's not speak in terms of keeping the bar low. Let's talk about keeping the bar realistic. Um, because a lot of what we're dealing here um, with here are parents who have not made, homeschooling is very time consuming. And parents who have, do not, have not made that space in their lives already cannot turn on a dime and do it, you know, and that would be really stressful for the whole family system. But I think that one thing you can do with your kids that might even help you to pivot a bit more in the future is 
they're out of the school situation probably for the rest of the year. I mean, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to believe that schools are going to resume with any sort of consistency. We'll see. Um, but I think we should be prepared, uh, you know, to be home till summer. Because your kid doesn't have to go back into the school situation, this is a great time to get them to talk about school because they, they're not they're not gonna have to go back into it. This is a really good time to find out what they enjoy about school and what they really hate. And it's time to listen closely to both of those things. Um, particularly if you have a kid who has been struggling in school and now is out, just allowing them to talk freely about what they hate can be so enlightening for you. So your task as a parent, and I know it's hard when you've got so many other things going on, and again, we're all in this sort of state of heightened anxiety. Listen to what they hate and try to figure out, is it a subject? Is it a style? You know, they'll, they'll always start with the subject. I'm so glad I don't have to do math anymore. Get them to talk about that. What is it that they hate about doing math? Is it that there's a workbook? Is it the kid that they sit next to? Is it that the teacher always does the math problems out loud and their auditory processing is of the kind that really can't deal with a lot of background noise? Is it that they're in a big group and they can't really hear what's going on or seeing the board? Kids just say, I hate things or I love them. And when they're immersed in those learning situations, it can be very hard to figure out why. But now you've got a chance. You've got a chance, let's, you know, kid says, I hate math. You've got a chance to say, well, I want to try, you know, let's try this workbook, let's try this, this hands-on math project, let's try this online program. Um, did, was that better or worse than what you were doing at school? Was that different? What was different about it? What do you miss about doing it in school? What are you glad that you don't have to do anymore? This can really be a wonderful opportunity um, for you to find out so much more about how they process, how they learn, what they find rewarding and what they don't. Because you've been yanked out of the nine to five routine, you know, or the 8.30 to whatever routine that the kids have been in. And um, everybody can take a minute and reflect. So you may really get some insight into what's working for your kid and what's not working. That, you know, who knows, it might lead you to say, mm, let's try this at home thing a little bit longer. But at the very least, it'll help you have some conversations with their teachers when they go back into the classroom. That's really helpful. Now, we realize that we're not trying to follow your curriculum or any curriculum by the book or completely thoroughly at this point, but you do have some, some background in your, in your work, in your book, The Well-Trained Mind, that tells us about child development and particular ways of learning that we may want to focus on for students of particular ages. You highlighted stories as something, uh, stories and math and language skills as being the three areas our students of all ages should be targeting each day. Talk a little bit more about what that might look like at different stages of education. Right. So one of the things that we emphasize in the well-trained mind is that students have, um, they have different mental capacities at different ages and that elementary aged children are really um, much better at learning through repetition and drill and practice and chanting and all of those things that little kids sort of naturally do anyway. 
Um, they're not so great at uh, critical analysis or at you know thinking really um, analytically about subjects. That comes along more in the middle grades. You know what we'd think of as maybe grades five through eight. Um, once again, the, the mental development shifts to where what becomes really important to children's learning or young people's learning at that point is self-expression, is actually putting their opinions out there in persuasive, you know, elegant language. So one of the things we really encourage parents to do, particularly when you're working with kids at home, is not to push the later stages of mental development down into the earlier stages because you're so desperately trying to make sure that you're um, educating them well, you know, that you're giving them a good solid education. Elementary students do not need to be asking lots of analytical questions or answering a lot of why questions unless they just want to. Middle grade students should be doing that, but they shouldn't necessarily have to be writing lots of original papers, lots of original stories, giving original speeches. That is more of a high school uh, level skill. So we talk about these as the grammar, the logic, and the rhetoric stages of education. And what we see in the development of a child's brain is that each one of these stages builds on the preceding stage. So the grammar stage simply means that you are assembling all of this information that kids need to make sense of the world. The logic stage means that kids begin to think about how all those facts fit together, how they relate to each other. They start to think about how they one fact causes another or how one fact is the effect of another one. And then as they move on into high school, they have information, grammar stage, they know how to evaluate it, that's the logic stage, and now they can really start to have an opinion about it. So um, if you're using, particularly you're using online resources, you know, you're doing your searching around for you know, what, what are we going to study this week, just be aware that there are a lot of resources out there that ask kids to do things that are developmentally inappropriate. So they ask elementary students to write a lot of original compositions or come up with original explanations for why something happens. Or they ask middle grade students um, to come up with what are basically, you know, high school research papers. Um, and just be aware that often these online resources can be pitched a little bit too high above the child's actual developmental level. And there's a good reason for that. Parents really want their kids to be doing good, rigorous work. Parents want to have high standards. So they're attracted to things that look like, wow, this is really going to challenge my kid. Well, you know, you can challenge a child, um, but you've also got to wait for their brain uh, development to catch up to uh, where they are in, in the process. So just, just try not to fall into the trap of doing too much too early. Thanks. That's helpful. Now, this week, you are doing a webinar that is co-hosted called Homebound that is particularly targeted to give families more extensive help on some of these exact questions at this juncture. How can our listeners access that? Um, well, that is free. All they have to do is go to... Um, uh, I'm co-hosting this with my good friend, Julie Bogart of Brave Writer, and she's hosting it on her site, and then um, then we're cooperating with her. So it's at bravewriter.com forward slash homebound. And it's a live conference all this week, but the sessions will be online for anyone to watch who goes to the website. Well, thank you for this conversation. It's been really rich and really helpful, and I hope that our listeners will go and check out your webinar as well. 
So we will um, make sure to get this out quickly so people can uh, be, be encouraged and find the resources that, that you're recommending. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Absolutely. You too. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning covenant blog, livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.